Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to this 10th episode of 1019, a Twin Peaks podcast. As always, I am Nick, and I am here with Dylan. Hi, Dylan. What's going on, dude? Not much. Coffee is flowing once again. It's a recurring theme. We're recording these fairly early my time, and uh, I've gotten into the, uh, the, the the habit of just uh, taking sips of coffee as I do it, and it just it feels right. It feels appropriate, and uh, it's really uh, livening up my experience, I would say. Like I've spoken about on Twitter, I used to be like a four or five coffee a day kind of guy. And I'm now down to just my morning cup, and I think it makes me a fraud. I don't mm. know if my qualifications are up to snuff to be doing this podcast, but I'm going to do it anyway. Unfortunately, there is a three-cup-a-day minimum to be on this podcast, or really to do any oh, Twin well. Peaks podcast. So, um, I don't know. You, you well, then. might have to either step your game up or, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say, but, you know, just take the hint. Well, wow. let's pause now. I'll go chug two cups, and then <laughs> this podcast will be 40 seconds long. It's it, it's like around 10.30 a.m. my time as we're recording this, and I'm like, I'm already on my third cup of coffee. and I, I have a problem, for sure. Party hard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, You know what's not a party, Dylan? What's that? Uh, is much of this episode. Yeah, this episode has um, some very uncomfortable violence uh, and some very silly violence, but I think we, we definitely get a big theme of domestic violence and abuse, um, and that is not good for any party that I've ever been to. No. <laughs> kind of ruins the party. Ruins uh, the whole vibe. Yeah, yeah. You probably want to leave that party if uh, Richard or Steven show up. Yeah, this one is an episode. This is probably the only episode that I really struggled with the first time it aired because for whatever reason, there's just such a high concentration of horrific and upsetting violence in this episode, particularly violence towards women. And I think because it is so concentrated, you you walk away from it feeling just not great. Like, n- not that it's not a good episode. In fact, I think that the infamous Richard scene is, is actually a very well-done epi- uh, scene. But you just, you walk away from it feeling... Uh, disconcerted i would say yeah because i watched this episode last week and i knew i was going to watch it again before we recorded and i i found myself really not that i didn't want to watch it but i didn't want to watch certain scenes because they do really they do really take you into that place and if you're gonna watch the show in earnest it's it you you're forced to really sit with those scenes like none of those scenes are a quick 
you know, 30 seconds long. They all really sit there and marinate in what's happening. And I, I knowing, you know, the, fir the first time, obviously, it's very jarring. And then on subsequent rewatches, knowing what you're getting yourself into, uh, it could be a, a drag to, to know that you're going to have to go back into that world. But I agree that it is very expertly uh, depicted and, and the, the way that especially the Richard scene is shot and the, the Steven scene as well. The, there's a, you know, there is an artistic merit to, to what we are seeing, whether or not we um, are happy to see it. So I think that as uh, much of like as much of a bummer as it is, it is still a very good episode that um, like a lot of these episodes sort of takes on its own ma uh, mini theme or little mini uh, area of focus. Yeah, it is. It is a theme. That theme is largely horrific, but it, it is a theme. I'll, I'll admit that part of me felt the urge to fast forward through some of these horrible scenes with Richard Same. and with Big Steven. Time. But I, in fact, you know, on previous rewatches, that is something that I've done. But I feel like I had a duty to really sit with it this time. And I think it's probably important to do so. You know, the, the these scenes, horrible as they are to watch, are... Uh, certainly in there for a purpose and we'll, we'll talk about that but it's not all horrible violence in this episode there's actually a very odd clashing of tones here where we get some pretty silly stuff as well um, I think especially the candy scene with the, the remote control th that whole sequence actually encompasses both the hilarious and the sad because it is such an absurd premise but then her reaction to it is is like strangely real and heartbreaking um yeah uh, to me that scene encompasses this episode in in a really um in a, in a really direct way but yeah uh let's not beat around the bush let's get into it part 10 laura is the one the Truman brothers are both true men. They are your brothers. And the others, the good ones who have been with you. Now the circle is almost complete. Watch and listen to the dream of time and space it all comes out now flowing like a river that which is and is not hawk laura is the one So let's let's just talk about it. Let's talk about Richard and all of all of his all of his shenanigans in this episode. The episode opens with him paying a visit paying a visit to Miriam in her trailer. We know that Miriam saw him hit the child at the intersection and 
he's he he knows that she saw him so he shows up and she tells him that she already told the police about him hitting the kid and that she sent a letter i was confused about this for a while because i didn't really catch the part where she says that she already told the police and she sent a letter i thought she just sent a letter in which case why do that you know why why not just call or show up to the 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 sheriff station directly but I did notice this time around that she said that she told the police already and that she was surprised that nothing had been done about it, which leads me to believe one would assume that the person that she contacted was probably Chad, right? That makes the most sense. Yeah, it could be. It could be, but I mean, wouldn't he have, uh, um, actually no, because when he's, when he talks to Richard right after all of that happens, uh, I'm sorry, right after like this scene, he doesn't really say anything about it, does he? Uh, like, he doesn't say anything about taking the call or... No, he do- he doesn't, but she yeah. says that she already told the, the police, which, if that's true, then one would assume that, a, you know, a police officer would have done something about it, so... Right, and the only one who wouldn't is Chad, of course. Right, so that's what led me to believe that she probably came into contact with Chad, not knowing that he's a giant piece of shit. So yeah, it could be that, or she could have been bluffing or anything, but either way, I think, uh, I think the fact that it all, the way that this whole scene unfolds is just, it takes on a life of its own. Mm. Yeah. So Richard is infuriated by this news. He, Busts his way in her trailer, and we get some really brutal sound work of him hitting her and of her crashing to the floor. And then we see him light a candle, and we get a shot that sort of pans from the candle down to the stove, which he has turned on, and then Miriam lying what we think might be lifelessly, but turns out she's actually alive. And obviously his plan was to explode her trailer park. Or her trailer, rather. Um, Ostensibly to to cover up any evidence that he had had murdered her. It was just a freak accident. Her trailer blew up. Correct. Yeah. So the the moment that he um the moment that he like breaks and breaks for the door, uh, is one of the scariest scenes, I think, in this in the return. Oh yeah. Just like I, I knew it was coming, obviously. But the the turn of like like that calm sort of like calm before the storm that stillness while they're just having a conversation to then the look on like as he kind of cracks his neck and then that look on his face and he just darts towards the door, um, it was just viscerally terrifying. I thought, yeah, very animalistic from from Richard here, and that's going to continue into this next scene that we're going to talk about here the the robbery scene happens a little bit later in the episode but i think it it serves us to just continue on with it here this scene is definitely without question in my opinion the most impossible to watch scene in the show it's we've talked before about some some rough scenes you know particularly mr c and daria but this is on a whole other level 
I think particularly because it's an assault on not just two people who are relatively helpless, you know, an older woman and a disabled man, but it's his grandmother. Right. It it takes on an entirely new life uh, when you when you add in the fact that not only shouldn't you rob and abuse this person, you should you should love her and you should be uh, happy to see your grandmother. Your grand I don't know about anyone else, but my relationship with my grandmother is great. I love her. I love her very much. And to think of this, you know, how someone could ever do that to that person in their life, uh, in in a way. You know, like, how do you one-up yourself, like, hitting a child with a car? It's like, that scene, although we do get, you know, the Carl Rod um, moment afterwards, but that scene happens really fast. Like, there's the kid runs in the street, he gets hit by the car, the truck, and it moves mm-hmm. on. It's terrifying. Whereas, and I, I, I do think, you know, objectively, it is, it is worse to murder someone than it is to rob them. However, right. when, when there is... I think when we when death is depicted on the screen, we have a um, it's almost like we have a built-in facility for dealing with that because it is something none of us have died, so no, we don't have the the reference point or or whatever. It has like maybe even though it is more extreme, it might have even less of an effect than something like this scene where it is um, he it's you know it's not even like he beats her up really bad. It's just the the manner with which he um, the language he uses with her and just the look in his eyes and the, the choking and all the, the drone of the, of the monkey just adds to the disorienting effect. It, but it, it, it stands to really, it almost where in the sense that like the, the, the truck scene is very, very horribly, uh, upsetting. This one forces you to really sit and think about a, maybe much more um i don't know what the word i'm looking for is but it's a little bit it could happen to you probably or i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say i guess i'm just trying to say that it's since it's it feels more real in a way yeah exactly it feels like you're connected to it more like you could um you could envision that happening to someone you love and it makes you really really uh terrified and upset and that's what it did to me i could just only picture like just someone doing that to my grandmother and it made me just fuel up inside with rage because it is so horrible right and death is something that we're kind of used to seeing in television and movies so i think there there is a degree to which we are desensitized to it horrible as it is but it's not every day that you see somebody assaulting and robbing their own grandmother you know yes it's it's a unique kind of of evil that i mean we all play video games and and shoot the bad guy and blah 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 and death death does have this desensitized um like nature sort of in our culture whereas i don't think anyone has to desensitize is desensitized to to what we see richard horn do to his grandmother it's just purely it's like an alien level of of malice (laughs) Yeah, this is like the kind of thing that even a lot of hardened killers would probably find repugnant. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, because it's just, it's it's only, the thing is too, like, it's only, he's being this cruel 
as a means to an end. Like he doesn't even necessarily have any beef with his grandmother. Like she didn't mm-hmm. wrong him in any way. This is simply just him trying to acquire money. Like yeah. it's just it, and and the it. thing is he even says I've got money but I want more, which is even mm-hmm. more fucked. Like yeah. It it's it, it is completely and utterly inhuman and I I have to give credit to the the actors in this scene because there is no shying away from them you know they they really give it their all to make this feel real and i'm sure that as an actor it's not the easiest thing to do i can imagine that this set was probably a pretty chilly and somber place to Eamon Farron who plays Richard i just don't know how you know, even though obviously you're an actor and you have to do it for a scene, I just imagine that after you perform a scene like this, people probably want to keep their distance from you a little bit. That That's just my inkling. I could only imagine. I mean, especially if they're, you know, if the way that they're acting is by trying to, you know, I don't know how common method acting is, but by using that sort of like emotional trigger to, to create this response that you act with, like it's got to be, it's got to be really, really jarring to get in and out of that as an actor and then to be someone on the set just sort of witnessing it and witnessing all the different takes um the actor who plays johnny horn i think just in his facial acting like with the gritting of his teeth did it just did a fantastic job of depicting uh, a whole other level of helplessness that even sylvia horn although she you, you do feel helplessness in her own right um johnny tied to a chair uh bound with his just sort of running in place, trying to do anything that he possibly can to to prevent this or, or stop it. It's just heartbreaking. And um, it was definitely a masterclass all around from all three actors on screen. Yeah, absolutely. And Jan Darcy, who plays Sylvia, the way that she looks at Richard, I, I think is really what drives this home. Because the way that she she looks at him is so incredibly hurt you know it's like Mm -hmm. she just you know she's she she's looking at her grandson and barely even recognizing a human being in him you know she as soon as he shows up to the door she immediately starts freaking out because she knows who richard is and ah man just the way that she looks at him when she's just laying helplessly on the floor as he's he's digging into her, her jewelry, you know, presumably taking out items that are of significance to her is completely heartbreaking. And I just, I got to give it up to Jan Darcy for going along with this. You know, this is her only scene and I'm sure it's not an easy thing to say, hey, great, I'm in the new Twin Peaks. And my only contribution is being brutalized and humiliated by my grandson. Like that's, that's, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure that's not an easy task as an actress. No. And, and I think though that she, the fact that she took it um, at all, but the fact that she took it and did such a great job at, you can really tell in her facial expressions, like you're saying that, her concern mostly lies for Johnny's safety, I think. 
mm-hmm. even more so than her own. She's not really concerned, I feel like, with the money aspect of it. It's like the only time she really makes you know pangs in her face is when she's looking at Johnny and when he's going through the jewelry, which is, of course, it's it's valuable, but I assume that those... I think that those are more sentimental or have right. you know, been passed yeah. down for generations. It's different, it's not about it's different than just reaching into a safe and taking out a stack of money. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, he, he, took, he took a part of her, a part of her, her family, uh, his own family, but um, and with just such wanton disregard. Uh, he even takes the silverware, which I thought was like... Yeah. really weird like i'm just picturing him going down to a pawn shop and, and just being like hey want some <laughs> and he's getting 50 bucks it's like just cruel just so absolutely unbelievably cruel yeah and let's talk about some of the ways in which lynch as a director heightens the tension in this scene because it really is remarkable first of all that fucking teddy bear is the most lynchian object you could possibly conjure in your imagination. Oh my god, I know. It has <laughs> so it, it has like sort of like an astronaut fishbowl type head. With yeah. What's even inside of it? I don't know. It's just like it's like a light. I can't even tell. Yeah. It's just like a Yeah. It's so strange. Yeah. And this refrain, this hello Johnny, how are you today? is crazy making. Just as it goes on because it goes on for so long and it just it's such a like a nails on chalkboard underpinning to this already ghastly scene the other part of it is the classical music that's playing in the background on top of it it's just yep. like creating this this symphony of confusion and madness and horror it really reminded, reminded me, me of, of oh, uh, A Clockwork Orange. Holy shit, know? I was just about to say that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was just literally about to say it reminds me of the scene in Clockwork where he kills a lady with the big dick. Oh, wow, great minds, yeah. Yeah, This we know that Lynch obviously was a huge fan of Kubrick, and th- this, uh, this tactic of using classical music to serve as an ironic counterpoint to the action on screen is a very kubrickian touch you know like we said in clockwork orange there are multiple scenes like that yeah there's that's all over the place and i think a lot of it has to do with you know this relationship between order and chaos that kind of gets you know it's such like a a um i don't know what you call it such like a basic theme that that sort of like kind of takes on a life of its own throughout whatever media it's in but I think it, it in scenes like this, it's really effective in that it's just one tone. Like we're we're getting the this this sound of because you know in that house right before all this happened, it was peaceful relatively. Like it was just Sylvia and Johnny. There were some cookies on the table. Johnny was hanging out with his little teddy bear. The music was playing, and it's not like when Richard Horn shows up, like all of that suddenly disappears at the drop of a hat and ominous music starts playing. It's like no, you you're you're he walked into that environment and then did what he did. And then all of a sudden his intrusion onto that creates now like a, a different perspective on what you're hearing. And so now this teddy bear, which was maybe 
silly and kind of cute and just sort of entertaining and pacifying Johnny is now like almost really disturbing and and maddening, like you said. And the classical music, which was previously peaceful in this context now, is actually kind of disturbing because it is serving as a juxtaposition to to what we're seeing and almost acts like a mirror you know what i mean like it acts like uh i don't know i think there's sort of the the extreme polarity between the two ideas almost brings both of them out and and it makes them fuller and that made the scene even more disorienting to me right it's honing in on a theme that kubrick was quite obsessed with which is this tension between our base animal instincts and the polite society trappings that we encase ourselves in right yeah i'd definitely say so and that i mean obviously that's a huge theme of clockwork orange yes yes exactly and the other thing i noticed about this scene that adds a layer of urgency to it is that when richard is choking sylvia and he's you know calling her a bitch and uh other things that i don't want to say the the camera is handheld and it's right up against both of their faces yeah which is is, um unusual for this series we don't really see a lot of camera work like that and it really adds to the immediacy of it even when the with the shot of johnny sitting at the table that Mm -hmm. is a hand uh, or it, it's moving the, the frame is moving and i think the other place we see that in this episode is during the steven and becky scene sure. where it cre it creates a like a tumult like a uh you know a, it, it there is it's like a, as if anything like as if that if that wasn't there this i think this scene would still be really brutally hard to watch but with the shakiness of the camera it it, it puts you even further into that into that effect and that mind state. And I think it's, it really, it really works. Yeah. Yeah. This scene is obviously incredibly difficult to watch, but I think expertly staged by Lynch and really hits at the, the dark heart of Richard and makes it clear just what, what a, just an inhuman piece of shit he is. And by extension, it's showing us the ripple effect of Mr. C's violence towards Audrey as well. Um, right. And that's, and I that's, think that, a lot that's of... what I think it's that's what I think it's really about in the in the grand scheme of of the season. I agree. And I think that that's a lot of the a lot of what this whole uh, this whole episode is, could be about is that sort of whether you want to look at it as like the direct thematic um effect of of what happened with audrey and mr c and how that spawned richard you also i you know the even though the episode i know the episode titles were not decided upon by lynch but laura is the one is a very uh important thing that is that is said by the log lady toward the end of this episode and i think it it does serve like we've talked about a lot it does serve this idea that Twin Peaks at its heart is about Laura Palmer and Laura Palmer's uh, trauma and what she dealt with. And you're seeing that in different shades throughout this episode, whether or not they have a direct connection to Laura Palmer or, or the fact that they're just sort of a part of Twin Peaks at large. 
but I think that that sort of that trauma and its subsequent effects are again at the heart of of what Twin Peaks is about and this episode really typifies that in a big way yeah absolutely and it's worth mentioning that we see Laura in this episode for the first time Mm -hmm. in quite a while I believe not counting the opening credits obviously for the first time since Bobby sees her prom photo in part four so um yeah we'll, we'll talk about that but cool the upshot of this scene is that Sylvia later calls Ben to tell him about this attack and Ben obviously has been through this before he knows that Richard is horrible he doesn't seem particularly surprised by it and Sylvia demands to be reimbursed essentially for all the things that Richard stole she's sort of pinning the blame on Ben to a certain extent which might not be fair but we're just seeing a family flailing at this point I think it's like what do you what do you do in the situation how do you handle it aside from obviously calling the police uh which is probably what should have happened (laughs) um but yeah it's we're seeing just in this short little scene here at the great northern the horn family being just maybe not not totally properly equipped to handle somebody like richard being in their family yeah and i think when there is you know a lot of the times when there is a a troubled member of the family a lot of blame goes around and a lot of people sort of uh, members of the family look to blame one another for for the the person turning out that way and I've learned just personally that uh, I, I always assumed that whenever something bad happened that there had to be a blame like someone had or something had to be to blame for this um, which is just you know it can be a really damaging mindset and I think that when I mean obviously I've never known anyone like Richard Horton in my family or anyone else's family. But yeah, I think we are seeing um, just that family just really struggling to come to grips. And and if Richard is this way, it must be someone's fault. And of course, Sylvia will will probably blame her, her ex-husband or his grandfather for not doing enough. Because she even says to to Richard right when he walks in, go see your grandfather for money. Like, I'm not going to give you money. Go see... Right. see your grandfather so there's um yeah an unhealthy amount of blame going around it makes me wonder how much the horns actually know about what happened to audrey like what do they think happened who do they think richard's father is it's an interesting question well, we have no way of knowing we have but... no clue we don't even we don't even know what they know about audrey which is right um they must know something um but yeah, we don't. It is very curious that we never, we never get anything from any of the horns about Audrey besides Richard when he says her name. But um, I don't know. I, I just think it's it's uh, it's interesting, and I think it's a definitely, um, it was an intentional omission. I think on the part of the of Lynch and, and Frost. Yeah, for sure. Let's visit the Fat Trout Trailer Park where some more pretty scary violence is happening. Carl Rod is 
sitting outside he's strumming his guitar and he's singing red river valley uh i love this red river valley just sort of a like an old cowboy song a folk standard that a lot of people know just seems like the kind of song that harry dean stanton might know i I just i can't help but read into carl rod as being basically just harry dean stanton himself (laughs) i don't know why yeah uh, I just... well, when you're 90 years old and sort of in the twilight of your career, um, you're sort of known for something. You know, you're known for a certain demeanor or temperament, and that's kind of what he's putting off there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He sees a coffee cup thrown through Becky and Steven's trailer, to which he responds, it's a fucking nightmare. And famously, this was the moment that Mark Frost teased before the season when somebody asked him, like what give us one thing what's something that you can share with us about season three anything he said a coffee cup gets thrown through a window of course it's totally inconsequential but yeah this is just kind of a a neat little thing to to share with people who are just starving for any information whatsoever i guess and, um, yeah and i think also the the sort of sanctity of of coffee throughout right. twin peaks is is pretty you know it's a pretty big symbol to be thrown through the window yeah, yeah. It, it actually, in retrospect, might have been a smart idea because of just how heavily the show subverts the old show. Um, oh, yeah, big time. So then we go inside this very upsetting scene in the trailer where Steven is on top of Becky, clearly in some sort of drug-induced rage, right? I think we can probably assume oh yeah yeah his face is all red his his nose actually has like some glob or booger Mm. or thing in there which i if you've ever seen the last waltz um yeah the unedited version (laughs) neil young has a nice glob of cocaine (laughs) in his nose looks that looks very similar yes 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 exactly um steven out of his mind on drugs he's screaming at becky Hard to tell about what exactly he does say to her. I don't ask you how much you make, blah, 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 blah. So he's probably he's probably responding to her asking, why don't you have a job? Something along those lines, right? I think so. I mean, yeah. it, I, I don't know that the nature of their argument is the point. It, no. Yeah, it's definitely no, certainly not. Something, but, something, something to that effect. Yeah, and Becky is just laying curled up on the couch like with her her hand sort of over her head anticipating a blow from him which tells you that this is probably not the first situation uh that this couple has been in like this not the first time no. steven has done something like this to her and he raises his his fist like he's gonna punch her we don't actually see him uh punch her which is something that the first time I saw this, I definitely remembered it like he he hit her a bunch, but mm-hmm. it's I think you you really only think that because of how imposing he is over her and how scared and how scared she is, and the fact that he appears primed and ready to commit violence against her. But yeah, and interestingly, you don't actually see it. Not not that it makes it any less horrifying, but it's all all you see is just the 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 terror from becky here yeah we don't we don't and we don't obviously see him hit her and she denies in the next episode that he does hit her 
But I feel like, you know, at, at the end of the day, acting like that, whether or not you lay a hand on someone, is still, you know, horrific, horrible abuse. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> Absolutely. The fact that, like, what what is it going to take? If she said, hey, fuck you, Steven, then he's going to hit her. It's like you're still, that's, that is still a monster of a person. Anyone who would scream in someone's face and sort of get them in that position. But the thing that really, um, I think kind of made me even more sad about it was that although she looks scared she doesn't look shocked or surprised and so like you said you can assume this isn't the first time this has happened it's just another time that he has sort of gone on this bender and and sort of made her feel powerless and helpless which is what i think you we end up seeing in the in the following episode where she is like most abuse victims sort of saying oh no he's not like that he's good inside um it's this real it's a it's a very um it even though it is very intense i think that the way that their relationship is presented does have a nuance to it not in the sense that like he he has redeeming qualities but just that it's not so cut and dry as she's in a bad relationship and she hates it and she wants out it's like she's traumatized and has sort of probably had to have her personality fractured in moments like that where it's like you you fear for your life and so you do what you have to to survive and then you're just left with that after the fact and you're not sure which one's the real you and i think that you know that speaks true to to laura and i think that speaks true to becky and to some degree probably shelly and um a lot of the other women who are who are who meet terrible abused fates on this show yeah, and we're going to see in the next episode the fact that even though Steven is clearly a dangerous, irredeemable asshole, she still wants to be with him, you know, in... in yeah, she has something for him. Yeah, yeah, which is a very common situation for an abusive marriage. And, um, yeah, it's it's sad, you know, the, the mask is off for, for Steven at this point because... When you first meet him, you think, yeah, you know, he's he's obviously a loser. He has a drug habit, but he, he clearly loves Becky. And now it's just like, well, we're, we're seeing what it's really like. You know, it's might be one thing when he's, you know, when they're in public and, you know, he's he's. uh, Yeah, I don't know. It's it's only going to get worse <laughs> with, with Steven from here because we're going to find out that he's obviously cheating on her and then obviously ultimately he we can assume probably kills her so um yeah yeah and the, we... the, whole, the whole becky and steven storyline is just like a gradual shedding of any pretense that this relationship is in any way healthy or or good for for becky that's why I, I still think that scene of, of them in the car where she does the, the sparkle or whatever it is. Mm. And, you know, we get that, that shot down on her face all whitewashed out. I, you know, I think that is sort of depicting what her life, like that's happiness for her. Like, ha- and the only happiness she'll ever feel is that sort of washed out, um, barely there type of dissociated happiness. Whereas the rest of her life is dealing with this, this, fucking crazy person and trying to con her mom out of money and um i think that their story 
is a is um there being Becky and and Stevens is like a little vignette within this series uh, or within the season that is is I think it's one of the more heartbreaking ones. Absolutely, and you can't help but thinking about it also through the lens of Shelley and Bobby, these two characters that we we have a prior connection with, and um, right, you right, know, it's you know you 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 feel for them as well because they obviously have some knowledge that things are not right but there's only so much that they can control there you know it's their daughter is um a young woman but a grown woman still um and she's married to this man and they you know they can try to help her out however they can but ultimately it's it's up to her to to say enough is enough and unfortunately it doesn't happen and I feel horrible for for Shelley having having lived through that and probably or possibly worse with Leo. Um, you know, she she was no stranger to to an abusive domestic situation. And so even though she may want to, you know, choose to believe Becky about what she says about Stephen, I, I get the sense that in her heart of hearts, she understands that, you know, that's what's happening uh, with, with in that household, which like, how could it not? Certainly, Shelley was really not that far off from meeting a similar fate as Becky. If if things hadn't gone the way that they did with Leo, <laughs> um, you know, if he didn't become a, a human vegetable, then uh, she might have met a similar fate. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So let's head to Vegas, where Duncan Todd is is doing some business here. Roger comes in, tells Duncan that Ike the Spike has been arrested, so they're obviously not going to get to kill Dougie through those means. Roger has Anthony, um, I'm sorry, Duncan has Anthony waiting in the background here, um, which is kind of funny. I don't know. It's like he has a waiting room in his office. (laughs) <laughs> and he's just he's just sitting there and making Anthony I don't know there's just something about this setup that I found funny here um, yeah it's a little goofy it is it's extremely goofy so Roger essentially convinces Anthony to or really orders Anthony to convince the Mitchums that Dougie denied the Mitchums insurance claim for their burned down hotel because of some personal vendetta against them and that if Anthony does not convince the Mitchums to kill Dougie that he is going to have to go ahead and kill Dougie himself what I find really weird about this scene is that Duncan claims that he and the Mitchum brothers are quote business rivals and bitter enemies which what <laughs> what like that is extremely rare like how do they already have a relationship that's so weird to me uh, yeah i didn't know if that was supposed to mean that they have had like they have always sort of hated each other or if this is some sort of new new beef that um but yeah i don't know they they're not even in competing businesses mm-hmm. necessarily no because because duncan is working for mr c and the only reason he should know about the Mitchums at all is because of this whole insurance plot, which I don't. It's it's very odd. Uh, like well, you can he o- says 
Good. And so he says that we conspired, meaning Duncan, or assuming Duncan and Anthony, like the one that we conspired to, like the insurance claim that we conspired to, right? Have have them uh, denied for right. to, for what reason? I, don't, yeah. I have no idea. Exactly. Like what the hell? This is so weird. Like this is like low key one of the weirdest things. The fact that Duncan Todd has some interest already in screwing over the Mitchum brothers. Very strange. Yeah. I think that might have something to do with whatever, you know, whatever Dougie was maybe pointing out with the case files. But again, the, I, I don't know. I think there, you know, there's a lot of times where we're not, we're not given the, what is it called? Like the MacGuffin, like the thing that like yeah. motivates the characters mm-hmm. that you don't ever, who cares what it is. Mm-hmm. But this isn't really that situation. Cause no. it's not like, it's not like, it's not a, uh, I mean, it's a motivator, but it's not like a big part of the show. It's, it's just a, I think it. I don't know. I think it was just a means to really get you know what happens over the next two episodes in place. It's a, it's a very unnecessary connection to draw. I think it's extremely odd. I also wonder what what is the nature of the relationship between Anthony and and Duncan Todd and you know he, I assume he's on their payroll, but he's also right. seems to be being coerced through threats. Um, at least I got that sense, you know, don't sit down. He's telling him what he needs to do. Don't speak. If the plan fails, you will have to kill Dougie yourself. It's like, like Anthony didn't have a, they weren't like, Hey, can you kill, can you get Dougie Jones killed? It, it is definitely that there's a coercion there. Yeah. So who knows if maybe he, I don't know, perhaps there's, I mean, I'm obviously conject. There's a lot of conjecture here, but maybe he had some sort of debt to them and he's sort of repaying it through, through his services in some way. Yeah, that's all I can figure. Maybe Duncan is blackmailing him somehow. Anthony is clearly under their thumb to some extent. We just don't know why. So Yeah, exactly. Lots of odd connections being drawn here. Let's stick around in Vegas, shall we? For the aforementioned candy and remote control scene. There's a fly in the Mitchum brothers' home. Candy is looking around for it. At first, she's swinging a, a red handkerchief around, and then she picks up a remote. And <laughs> I guess we're meant to believe that she has no object permanence or something. But she hits the fly, which happens to be on Rodney's face. And Rodney obviously flips out and has a big bloody wound on his head. This scene we've learned was actually conceived because of the fact that this actor, Robert Nepper, got a big wound on the side of his head somehow and they needed some way to explain it. Oh, really? Yeah, so Lynch uh, conceived of this whole scene here. It It was something that they kind of thought of on the fly, apparently. Um, on the fly you say on the fly hey hey now uh <laughs> yeah i i didn't know that that's actually really that's really funny because it's in some ways it's such a perfect lynchian scene yeah i agree and this is actually the source of the clip that was going around a while back that sort of became popular where, where lynch is complaining about how other people think the scene is too long 
this is the scene that they're filming. I don't know. Have you seen this clip that I'm talking about here? No. No, I haven't. So it's in the behind the scenes Blu-ray and it went like semi-viral on like David Lynch Twitter where somebody, I, I don't know who, it's somebody on the crew is commenting on the fact that this scene takes a really long time and that she chases the fly for a while and this person is making some sort of suggestion as to how the scene can be cut down and lynch obviously this is not the first time that he's heard such suggested so he kind of flips out and he goes like he's like (laughs) he's like who gives a fucking shit how long a scene is (laughs) he gets like visibly pissed off (laughs) he's like what is it with everybody dude i love that because i adore these long shots I, yeah. I i think that i've said it before and and what like you get a t- you get time to really sit there and 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 marinate on how strange what is happening is and the first time it happened i was just like wondering you know where is this going where yeah. is this going and then it, the for it to end in like uh it, it just sort of erupts uh in this sort of like physical punchline uh and then the 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 you get the screaming of Rodney, the concern of Bradley, and then the complete incessant wailing of Candy. It just goes from dead silence to this cacophony. Uh, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. One of my favorite scenes in The Whole Return. I had no clue what to make of it the first time I saw it, but now now I definitely really love it. And I think it's fascinating because of who Candy is. Because... She. It's difficult to say what exactly her relationship is to the Mitchum brothers, because but it, she is subservient to them to some extent, and I think in this episode we're gonna see a few times ways in which she is oddly acting out against them and rebelling in this strange way. Like I don't think that she necessarily meant to to hit Rodney here, but it's almost like. I don't know. I just get this impression like her her subconscious is rebelling against the fact that she's subservient to these two uh, tough gangsters. Do you know what I mean? Like definitely, yeah. It's like she has some sort of Stockholm syndrome thing going on. And this scene, and then later the one where she's like taking forever talking to Anthony and like really pissing <laughs> them off. She's sort of like uh, sticking her tongue out at them to a certain extent. And I think that's partly why Candy has become sort of a a weird fan favorite in a way is because she's, to a certain extent, knowingly or unknowingly, she's, uh, she's thumbing her nose at uh, this patriarchal authority that she's found herself under. Yeah, it does. I do get that sense, too, that even though she may be under whatever you know effects of Stockholm syndrome or, or whatever reason she has for being subservient to them. She has uh, just sort of in her action and in her, her, her nature, it has this, this rebelliousness in this. Um, it, it's really like, it's funny cause you can't really, from the second that she's on the screen, she, she acts this way. Um, she had, and in the other two who are, you know, of course dressed identically are throughout the entire return, completely silent. I'm pretty sure. And, yep. and sort of exist like on the wings of, of candy. But the way that she, she seemingly like simultaneously is 
is beholden to them, the Mitchum brothers, but also seems to be doing kind of like whatever the fuck she wants, like however the fuck she wants. She's just sitting there spinning her hand, like not listening <laughs> really ever. Uh, then they ask her to do something and they have to ask her five times. And then she's like, oh, you, so you want me to bring him in here? <laughs> um, and and I, I thought it was I, I do love that that next scene with them. With the Mitchum brothers looking over the looking uh, at the security footage, but when Bradley says, "You know, if we fire her, she's got nowhere to go," um, gives me the sense that they do have some compassion towards her. It's not like she's some broken human necessarily, um, but I don't know. I, I there, she just cracks me up in general. Yeah, it's she in a way she's in sort of a similar situation to Becky, you know, where she's like. She's under this uh, this tyrannical control uh, of of the men in her life, but she doesn't. She's she's young and she doesn't she doesn't know how to really get herself out from under it in a way. Right. Um, right. And this is but this is like the this is like the whimsical version of that, where as opposed to like the horrifyingly real version of it. Um, yeah, and Candy is just absolutely inconsolable after this she's weeping she says like how can you ever love me again and big shout out to amy shields who really pulls this off convincingly and makes it feel heartbreakingly real against all odds because it's such an absurd scenario yeah the way she reacts immediately after like you know she she swings the remote and she has this look of satisfaction for like half a second and then it completely turns to utter horror when she realizes what she did yeah and the way that she plays this all this aftermath really to me is reminiscent of somebody who is like a a trauma victim or somebody who is in an abusive relationship where even it's like they feel so scared and they're walking on eggshells around this person to where even the slightest mistake just sends them into a a fit of like self-blame and self-doubt and it's my fault and I'm bad and you know no one could ever love me and that's why I can't leave and all those sort of really complicated emotions are evoked here in a really surprising way i feel like um they are it's and kind i think of we brilliant. get the we get the levity of um while she's sitting there crying on the couch uh after a while after a while rodney's like candy i'm okay like don't worry about it it's fine like he he he's he almost feels you know i'm sure he feels bad for her um for how like insane she's being and then the look like when she says how could you ever love me uh he kind of just like he's sitting on the couch and he just sort of turns his palm over and they're sort of like what the fuck like <laughs> um it, it, it that that scene i think it hits on a lot of on a lot of levels and i think it just does a really good job yeah and also adding to the levity is the fact that that hilarious news interview gets played again that we saw from part oh, seven God, yeah. from uh Ike's failed assassination attempt on Dougie, which, as we've established, is like my favorite thing in the world. Where it's beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, really happy that we got to to see that again. Lynch must have loved it as much as me. Uh, yeah, and um, the little 
I forgot exactly what he says, but uh, when they're talking about Ike the Spike being being uh, arrested, uh, just the way that uh, Jim Belushi goes, saving us a couple of bucks, nice, and just like does this air <laughs> fist bump. Like these guys go from being really kind of like in the first scene with them really intimidating gangsters to just these like goofy kind of like really funny brothers yeah the this is really the beginning of the mitchin brothers becoming a major character becoming major characters on this show like we're gonna see a lot of mitchin brothers from here on out and they're wonderful i love them i love candy i love everything about them uh i'm waiting for the mitchin brothers spinoff series uh let's make it happen um 2019 let's do big things hell yeah another odd thing that i wanted to point out here was the fact that the mission seemed really excited that ike the spike was arrested which says which makes them say that oh i guess we have to call off the hit on ike the spike why do they have a hit out on ike the spike uh yet another weird ass connection like what what do they have to do with ike the spike I don't know if it's like supposed to be an opaque connection to to Duncan Todd. Like we're just getting these little inklings of how they may be involved with one another. So yeah, who knows? Uh, Ike the Spike assassinated someone close to them, and they found out that it was him. So they're trying to have. Who knows? I think that it is definitely though trying to make draw some sort of you know dotted line between these these two worlds. Very strange. Uh, I mean, that's what we signed up for, right? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Kind of. Yeah. Let's stick around with the Mitchum brothers and Candy. And let's talk about what happens at the Silver Mustang. So, first of all, the Mitchum brothers, they're looking at the security footage. And they see Anthony down there talking to their floor manager. And I love this line that Jim Belushi has here. <laughs> I love the way he delivers it. He says, I can throw a car farther than I trust that rat fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I think we even talked before about how everyone was like, Jim Belushi, how in the new Twin Peaks, what? But, Mm -hmm. dude, it's so perfect. He just nails it. He's brilliant. Uh, I love him in this show. They send Candy down, like we mentioned, to go meet Anthony and and bring him up to them. And Candy they have a really hard time getting her attention because she is just off in her own world. She's doing her little hand wavy motion that we've mentioned before, <laughs> which I love. Um, yeah. And she is like, again, on one level it's funny, but on the other level, it's like, it almost rings of something that would happen to somebody who's been recently traumatized, you know? Like, hitting yeah. Rodney with the remote has, like, made something snap within her, it seems. Yeah, I don't know. She has that almost, like, um, what is it? The, uh, like, the MK Ultra thousand yard stare, <laughs> like, she's been programmed. Um, yeah. And then she, she, some, some sort of glitch in her programming is causing her to be a little, a little shit, which is just amazing. <laughs> Certainly. So, hilarious long scene here yet another long scene of the Mitchums just watching just glaring angrily as Candy is saying a bunch of stuff to Anthony it goes out for a while and finally they come up 
and they ask her like what what the hell were you guys talking about and at first she can't remember and then she's just like oh yeah we're just talking about the weather and how hot it is and how lucky we are to have air conditioning just this totally mundane stuff and they're just looking at her like what what i think it's it's there's um there's a weather report right before the dougie jones thing um like news report um, uh, when they're watching TV, and I think she just like nicked. I think they say something like that's what, that she said we're in the virgin lair or something like that. Yeah. I think that's what they say on the TV. So she pulls like a she pulls a big Lebowski and just like parrots this random thing she heard on the TV. <laughs> yes, yes. And so Anthony is here to tell them that it was all Dougie's fault. The hotel that burned down. Um, the reason that they didn't get their insurance money, the thirty million dollars, was all because of Dougie Jones and. He conspired against them because of some unspecified personal vendetta. And just yet another thing I love about this scene, the way that Tom Sizemore delivers this line, you have an enemy in Douglas Jones. And he repeats it a couple times, and he's like pointing at them as he, as he says it. It's like, you have an enemy in Douglas Jones. And the Mitchum brothers are both just looking at him like, okay, so? <laughs> yeah, it's almost, I mean... I was half expecting them to ask why, be like, well, why? Because they know who Douglas Jones is now. Like, yeah. They, mm-hmm. they, they know that he's, uh, I mean, he's there's so many the things casino. that are just like, yeah, there's so many things that, um, there's so many questions to ask, yet they ask none of them. <laughs> they just sort of, they just sort of throw some shade at Anthony. And then as soon as he leaves, they take what he says, takes what yeah, they take, what he says as gospel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause we end up back at their house where, uh, just as a side note here, we get a little jazzy number uh, as they're talking, and this is actually by Thought Gang. It's, just, it's a uh, song called Headless Chicken. Thought Gang is the jazz duo formed by David Lynch and um, Battle Mente, um, who actually, news recently came out, are going to release an album. I believe I of, read that article this morning. Yeah, I believe of of some older songs. Um, but yeah, yeah, this, it's something this... they recorded in '98. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Thought Gang goes all the way back to Firewalk with Me. I believe um, there there's some some Thought Gang joints on that soundtrack as well. So yeah, they set up a meeting with Dougie and uh, Jim Belushi with yet another hilarious lie. Just pure solid gold from the Mitchums in this episode and really from here on out you fuck us once shame on us you fuck us twice shame on you you're dead (laughs) Uh, oh my god there's so many there's actually I think in like there's so many funny angry uh, like little turns of phrase that that people use in this in this episode like with Richard Horns talking to um, he's talking to Chad He's like, you better get it, you chicken chip, or I'll fuck you up bad. <laughs> yeah, it's just these little, uh, these very corny, uh, but very earnestly delivered lines that I think that I think are just absolutely hilarious. Yeah, and this line might be a little bit of trolling on George W. Bush, who uh, famously also also screwed up this this couplet <laughs> in a very public and embarrassing way. Oh God, I forgot about that. That's genius. Yeah, what does he say? He's like, uh, fool, fool, <laughs> fool us once, shame on you, 
fool us twice. We're not going to get fooled again. <laughs> I believe that's how that uh, went. Uh, yeah. Just a classic, classic moment from the, uh, the George W. Bush presidency there. Let's, let's go to the doctor's office where Dougie is ripped. He looks so fucking good. Even for just objectively, like just for his age and everything. Yeah. Like, he's cut, man. Oh yeah. Kyle McLaughlin. Woo. Kyle McLaughlin, he's uh yeah, he's keeping it tight. He's uh he clearly anticipated uh, a few shirtless scenes here. He's looking great for a man in his late fifties. Or, or really just for anyone. He he looks better than me, I can tell you that. Um oh, yeah. yeah, and the doctor notices how fit he is. Janie E, it seems, is like just now noticing how fit he is. And uh, she's she's looking at him approvingly. She says that he's lost weight in a good way. She does this little like side smirk where she smiles with half of her face. It's just a great little piece of facial acting. I loved. <laughs> yep. Well, just while she's watching him, like you know, get his get his heart taken, she just kind of this little mm-hmm. half smile, like ooh. Yeah. Yeah. She's 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 checking him out, and Dougie <laughs> just can't stop messing with the doctor's stethoscope which i love like the doctor is trying to take his heart rate and he's just having to struggle with dougie uh similar it's like dougie it's like dougie thinks it's a badge you know what i mean yeah that that was how i read it something like that is how i read it too (laughs) so yeah directly from that scene we go to the kitchen at the jones household where dougie is enjoying some chocolate cake and Janie E is uh, v- visibly horny. I love how the scene enters with her like rubbing her feet together and then just like panning up to her gazing at Dougie. It's like you just immediately understand what's happening here. Yep, and then uh, you immediately see Dougie just sitting there <laughs> mowing down some chocolate cake, like mm. <laughs> the sexiest fucking dude on earth eating some dessert <coughs> oh god and she's like do you find me attractive dougie and he's just totally unresponsive eating chocolate cake <laughs> uh but apparently it's enough for a genie and big shout out to naomi watts in this scene who is giving the horniest performance in recorded history oh my um, god just the the utterance of dougie Dougie, it's just, it's too much. Like, I can't even, sometimes I can't even laugh at it because I'll just, I won't be able to, like, watch it. It's just too fucking funny. Yeah. And you have to wonder what must have been going through Naomi Watts' head at this point because we know that none of the actors had any clue what was going on during the filming of these scenes. So, in her mind, she's just, her character is just outrageously horny for this catatonic man baby who's, like, absentmindedly eating chocolate cake. She, I could only imagine what must have been going through with Naomi Watts's head in this moment. Yeah, I mean, if she hadn't had a storied history with Lynch, and you, you'd, you'd think she might be a little more jarred. But I, I like to think that she's okay. She's just gonna trust him, whatever, whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. Worked out perfect. Certainly. And then they have sex, and uh, she's on top, uh, which is how we see virtually all sex scenes uh in this show um interesting just not gonna comment further uh 
good point yeah just this seems to be uh the way that david lynch enjoys filming these scenes dougie is flapping his arms uh (laughs) hilariously (laughs) and making all sorts of faces and uh this is the most normal sex scene in david lynch history yeah it's just two people fucking one one of them they're both happy Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> there's no real i really don't read into this scene really at all like i don't i'm don't not no. trying to like make any connection to anything this is just this is just that couple having sex and, mm-hmm. and it's fucking awesome yeah and it's clearly the best sex that they've had in in some while uh, judging by genie's reaction afterwards where she's like i can't stop thinking about last night dougie is just a sex god he acts like you know he because clearly you want you know he you get that shot of his just elated face while he's just lying there and just pure bliss mm-hmm. uh, i did i just noticed that at least in that next scene he's a little bit more like cooperative or like just sort of goes along with everything a lot easier like he he leans into her without ha- her like having to drag him in he actually kisses back uh slightly and then she says, "Go to okay, let's get you to work." And he just turns and walks to the car. And it's just like, wow, man, they're really mm-hmm. they're firing on all cylinders in this Dougie Janey E relationship, and that's really nice. That's heartwarming. It is. It is the uh, the Jones relationship appears to be in in surprisingly good shape, and they do have a surprisingly tender moment um, afterwards where Janey E says, "I love you," and, and he responds back. Yeah, I, I, as as Dougie often does, I love you, and uh, really beautiful track playing here. Another Johnny Jewel song, "Slow Dreams," which I really enjoy. We get another Doctor Amp rant. Uh, I think we've had a couple of these before. Um, I think we're gonna get like maybe one after this one. I think maybe two. Just sort of a typical Doctor Amp spiel here where he's uh railing against pharmaceutical companies and other societal evils the real star of this though is nadine who is watching dr amp lovingly while sipping on a milkshake and she says he's so beautiful (laughs) uh dr amp is her kind of guy apparently it works, and when you think about it, who would be who would be Doctor Amp's number one fan in Twin Peaks? It's like yeah. fucking. There you go. <laughs> Makes total sense. And again, I just love the the touch of her drinking a milkshake while watching this. Uh, yeah, she's in this con like even even after the fact, she's like in a constant state of suspended adolescence, mm-hmm. where she's just this kind of this quirky, uh, just sort of a. Uh, weirdo yeah and she's drinking out of the kind of glass that you would get at a diner it's not the kind of it's not the kind of um cup that you would bring home from a fast food restaurant or something like that it's it's almost right, like yeah. she made her own like classic diner milkshake at home i don't know i just thought that was weird um, certainly is yes and then, of course, we get the reveal of her drape store, Run Silent, Run Drapes, which is a... Like, uh, hell yeah. yeah. Go Nadine. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, of course, a reference to the classic 1958 uh, World War II film with Clark Gable, Run Silent, Run Deep, 
very old-timey reference that I appreciate. Yeah, D- don't really have much to say about it. It's just a great sight gag the first time you see it. Run silent, run drapes, and you see the, the drape runners going, you immediately know what's going on, and uh, it's very satisfying. Yeah, I didn't catch the reference because I, I, I didn't know about that, that movie, but I, I loved the callback to, to the silent drapes. I just thought it was... Mm-hmm. You don't get a lot of that in this in this season, but when you do, it's it's nice. Yep. And uh, another short, pretty inconsequential scene here. Jerry Horn checking in with him. He's lost still in the woods. He's getting no service on his phone, and he feels the urge to scream. You can't fool me. I've been here before. Okay. Yep. Checks out. Yep. That All fits. right. <laughs> moving on yeah there's nothing too much to say Jer- jerry just being jerry at this point um let's go to the twin peaks sheriff station where we get just more beautifully dickheaded chad behavior he approaches lucy she comments on what a beautiful day it is and <laughs> He has this line where he's like, I bet you and Andy wake up each morning and say, oh, what a beautiful day it is. Very condescendingly. (laughs) Um, Which she does not get, really, and just responds with a classic Lucy literal response. Yeah, I don't think Lucy is really uh, primed to comprehend this this mode of condescension from Chad. I don't really think it's in her in her wheelhouse. (laughs) i i just i kind of enjoy the degree to which chad is almost like as much of an asshole as he is he's sort of like the only real person in the twin peaks sheriff station like he reacts to stuff like like lucy's weirdness and the log lady the way that uh an ordinary person might if an ordinary person was a complete asshole and found themselves dropped in the middle of twin peaks yeah he is he whereas like i think when when he wants to lynch has a way to depict bad guys as truly irredeemably horrible and not even enjoyable to watch on screen with chad you can tell he's having a little bit of fun like he, he's a bad person and he's involved in terrible things uh, like indiscriminately but he's entertaining in how much of a uh, a condescending jerk off that he is yes yes precisely chad goes out to intercept the letter from miriam um about richard's accident lucy watches she's suspicious and that's kind of it nothing really comes of this uh we don't really see lucy take any action but we do get the sense that lucy knows that something weird is is up with chad and the mailman also has a look of suspicion as well. I think these are just meant to build suspense for us, but ultimately Chad gets away with what he's trying to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, yeah, the authorities never come for Richard, despite all the, the horrible things that we see him do. It's ultimately his father, Mr. C, uh, who proves to be his undoing, which is pretty ironic. Um, let's check in uh, with the Blue Rose Task Force. We get uh, a great little moment here of Albert and Constance having dinner together, sort of flirting a little bit, um, which which makes sense. 
that these two would, would be attracted to one another it seems like um yeah sh- that was a nice little nice little scene yeah a little short-lived uh romance we don't really get to see it uh develop into anything but i like the fact that they included it just just adds a little bit of humanity particularly to albert who's sort of a you know he, he he's albert <laughs> um yeah he's, he's sort of no of nonsense but uh it's great that they give him just a just a little bit of just a little bit of uh humanity here um, yeah and i wonder if more scenes were shot and they maybe just sort of included only the the two that we get where they interact in the in the at the morgue and then when they interact you know at this little this little date that they're on but it's just i i think that this whole season's littered with nice little moments like that for all the the grand terrible horrible things there are like a good little spattering of of cute little scenes like this one yeah it's stuff like this that you forget about and then you watch the the the, the episodes again you're like oh yeah that was nice yeah, and gordon and tammy watching and, and sort of being you know representing the viewer and, and sort of acting how we would act in that scene it was it was good it was it just shows that like he uh you know lynch just has he's just a good filmmaker you know regardless of if he's making something disturbing or something uh heartwarming he just has a way to to execute what he's meaning to execute and speaking of gordon we check in with him in his hotel room they're still in buckhorn and he's doodling on a piece of paper he's drawing some sort of antlered beast like some like a deer or something along those lines not exactly clear yeah, it's like a weird looks like a, maybe even like a dog thing with these weird antlers and then there is uh he we see him drawing like a, an arm a long arm stretching out from off the page toward it mm-hmm. uh and that's all we really get yep that's it that's how gordon passes the time apparently he gets a knock from albert he answers the door and to his surprise and ours we see a giant image of Laura Palmer crying hysterically from Fire Walk With Me. What do you make of this? I don't know particularly, but it, it seems as if this is some sort of a transmission from from Laura to Gordon, um, one of negativity. And we also hear um, the muffled Sarah Palmer yelling Laura. Yes. So what I'm, my hunch is that this was some way of the Lara, quote unquote, the good Lara, communicating to Gordon Cole that Sarah Palmer is uh, in trouble in some sense, and that, like I don't know, just just the inclusion of her voice, and then this, the the scenes we get later with Sarah, and the. Uh, when she removes her face and we see Lara's smile as well as the 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 doppelganger type hand with the spirit finger. Perhaps this was just some sort of um, way that Lara, the spirit or whatever we're talking about her as, was trying to communicate to Gordon Cole. Or maybe it had something like maybe his he's always been clairvoyant in some sense, but his interaction with the zone Oh wait, no, sorry, that doesn't happen yet. That happens in the next episode. Never mind. Right. So perhaps, perhaps it could have been some sort of message from Lara. Yeah, and um, 
I do have to correct you on one thing though. The the smile yeah. inside Sarah Palmer's face is not actually Laura. That was oh, it's a, not. No, that was so. This was weird. That was actually something that was done in Photoshop by somebody who was trying to um, create evidence for a, like a pet theory that they had. Mm-hmm. So, like they they altered the smile in sarah's face to make it look like the the smile from the prom photo but that's that's not actually what it is yeah so so someone just fucking trolled that one through no Mm -hmm. way yeah so Ah, so somebody trolled it through and then everybody just kind of accepted it because you know you know i definitely accepted it but then apparently somebody actually took a look at it and saw that um they had doctored it to make it that way who the fuck has the time dude like i'm telling you why (laughs) i'm telling you some people have motivations that completely elude me but there is there is an unknowable fucking <laughs> level of weirdness that it must take to to be convince you like you must have had that hunch and then realize you were wrong and then yes. not been able to accept it yes oh my god that's weird yeah mm-hmm. very bizarre yeah so albert tells gordon about all this suspicious activity that diane has been uh, engaging in with Mr. C via text. Like we mentioned before, he mentions that some of her text traces back to a server in Mexico. So there's some intermediary at play between Diane and Mr. C. He also mentions right. that um, her texts were, were heavily encrypted, specifically the one where she says they have Hastings because they're going to take him to the site. Um, so yeah, this is sort of the beginning of our suspicions of Diane and, and questioning her role and her motivations in all this. Yeah. And I'm still not, I'm still not convinced that she knows she's working with Mr. C directly. No. Um, no. I, I don't get that sense, but um, I, I would probably take back some of my previous statements about her maybe being completely unaware of what she's doing. I think she, is is definitely working under certain pretenses. We're not uh, allowed in on that as the viewer, um, like who she thinks she's working with. But mm-hmm. um, you know, sending texts like that and the way that she she sort of deliberately excuses herself from certain things throughout the the season that I think um, are very curious. Like how when she decides to stay back in the morgue and when she in the next episode where she doesn't want to go toward the zone she clearly knows certain things uh and that she is playing coy and sort of playing like she just wants to sit back and have a smoke but she i don't know she uh we talked about earlier on in this uh in this podcast that the diane tulpa character is one of the more perplexing characters uh in terms of her motivation and, and, or just sort of what her end is and what she's striving for. Yeah. We know that clearly. Uh, yeah. I think I agree with you. I don't think that she knows that she's working for Mr. C per se, but I think it's also clear that she's not exactly working in good faith with the FBI either. And no, you're right. We're not, allowed to know exactly what she knows and what she doesn't so yeah very curious we get 
a weirdly dramatic shot of Tammy turning the hallway corner here. <laughs> um, and she enters the room and shows Gordon and Albert a photo of Mr. C at the glass box, which confirms what a lot of us had suspected already, which is that Mr. C is the mastermind behind the whole glass box setup. So, yeah. Right, which we can maybe assume he is using to try and trap Judy, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, sort of. Um, Yeah, yeah. And also, perhaps serve as a, um, which, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, as a means to reroute Cooper uh, to switch spots with Dougie also. Right, um, like some sort of conduit thing mm-hmm. to get him from one. Yeah, I got you. Right, to get him into the uh, the, the Mauve zone. Right, um, right. Yeah. So, yeah, so the last real, um, quote-unquote, real scene that we get here is the Log Lady. And this is maybe if not her most beautiful monologue, this is definitely one of them. I I love some of the stuff that she says here. No, this Uh, is a beautiful poem. Like regardless of if it's written as dialogue, it's, it reads like poetry. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't take note of all of it here, but just some of the stuff she says, um, electricity is humming. You can see it dance among the sea and stars. These days it's dying what will be in the darkness that remains the truman brothers are true men the circle is almost complete watch and listen to the dream of time and space it all comes out now flowing like a river laura is the one just a lot of imagery that we've become accustomed to like electricity and darkness and circles um Mm -hmm. you know space laura just arranged in a, a pleasingly poetic fashion, which is which yeah. is sort of the log lady's mode throughout this season. Yes, and and I always get the sense that she is speaking, uh, that the, the log is speaking through her in these in a lot of these scenes with a lot of her dialogue, and um, I think we we do get big uh like you know some inklings or some hints to 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 what is like happening like the circle is almost complete uh we kind of do know what that means and how it uh, how it has to do with agent cooper coming back and the whole 253 thing um and but i i also feel like a lot of this stuff that we're a lot of these uh, these images like where are we the watch and listen to the dream of time and space it all comes out now flowing like a river that which is and is not that is pretty um that's like if you've ever read siddhartha that's sort of like like the vedic uh like proto buddhist um just like way of thinking like the 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 theme of the river as this sort of um inexorable just reality that is and what is and isn't and is good and bad like encompasses all um and i know that that is sort of at the heart of the transcendental meditation that that Lynch is doing, which is sort of a, a source for a lot of his ideas. Um, and I, I think that we're getting this weird blending of, uh, of a lot of the different themes and images that we see throughout Twin Peaks 
and it but it doesn't read like you know this isn't telling us anything this isn't really giving us any clues as to what is happening or what the plot is and it's almost just sort of evoking feelings that we have felt throughout watching twin peaks i think even in the original run um but what i really find fascinating is how this connects to the next scene with rebecca del rio and the song that she performed called no stars right yeah and before we get to that i just want to give a shout out to hawk here um Mm -hmm. i really appreciate hawk's level of reverence for the log lady here and really throughout this season he doesn't say anything but he's you can tell that he's really sitting with her words and listening very respectfully to what she has to say he knows that the things that she is saying are important on some level and he is really i feel giving himself up over to her and and giving it his full attention even though he doesn't say anything and i think michael horse does a great job of of conveying that very simply so yeah there's a the just the stoic look on his face uh is consistent with the respect that he he's clearly has had for her throughout the their interactions in this season and even in the past ones yep and yeah like you said we close out with rebecca del, rebecca del rio uh a lynch favorite who we of course remember uh from the legendary club silencio scene at Mulholland drive she sings this song, No Stars, at the Roadhouse. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I, It's like, I don't know what anything is referencing, necessarily. Like, um, We do know that David Lynch, I believe, wrote this song, or co-wrote it, I, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's some very serious connections between what the log lady i think intentional connections between what the log lady says and what um the lyrics are like you know you think so there's i mean not i guess not cut and dry clear but some of the the stuff about electricity and that the the where is it the stars are glowing around the moon but in these days the glow is dying so it starts off um my dream is to go to that place, you know, the one where it all began on a starry night. And then the, the refrain of it ends up being, um, but there now no stars, no stars um, under the starry night long ago, but now it's a dream. There's some sort of, uh, huh. I mean, again, I don't know that this is telling us anything, but the, that no, idea no. of the, the light fading, uh, it's consistent. And I don't know what, to make of the auto tune on her voice because she can certainly <laughs> sing. And I know she had some sort of health problems that with, she had like a scare where she, Rebecca Del Rio wrote the, sorry, Rebecca Del Rio thought she mm-hmm. might not be able to sing again and ended up being able to. Um, but I, I, I remember reading that when this, when this first aired, people kind of dug into it uh, and people were maybe making, trying to make this connection between the auto tune as like, the negativity or like the negative form of, of electricity or whatever, or like it's <laughs> some sort of perversion of, of this beautiful singer's voice. But I didn't think that at all. If anything, I thought it was a stylistic choice. Yeah. Um, but either, either way, I think that it was a nice little um, 
Like it was a very evocative, like I think it's like eight minutes or whatever that you get those like two scenes back to back. Um, and not uh, people also made a big old deal out of Rebecca Del Rio's dress and how it was almost like the, <laughs> yeah. the red room uh, iconography. But as of, at the end of the day, I really love I love the song. I think it's cool that Moby's playing guitar. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that until I looked it up after. Yeah, I totally did not notice guys, until somebody else pointed it out. Yeah, all ball guys look the same, myself included. So <laughs> I don't know, white ball guys, I should say. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I truthfully, I never really looked into the uh, the lyrics here, but I, I see what you're saying. You know, the connections, the idea of you know stars, which is something that we we literally just heard the log lady bring up. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. I never really I never really made those uh those connections before. Um, yeah, the auto tune. I yeah I so you you feel like pretty hundred percent convinced that there is auto tune. Sounds like there are certain spots where yeah where it's like again she's it's not like auto tune. I think for for some artists is like is like you if if it's being used in a sense that um or if it's being used in a way that it's trying to mask something like it's trying to go over that you, it's probably unrecognizable but there's some just certain runs that she goes on where mm. the where the run is like it each note is articulated in a way that a human voice just doesn't do uh, uh yeah i'm it, it's on the it's it's not like she's using it to reach certain notes. It's that on some of these runs, there's this weird articulated. Uh, 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 is the only way I can. Yeah, like it, when she's saying when like when she's saying stars, you know. Yes. It's like it's yeah, like but, there's it's like she's hitting like three different notes before she hits that that long sustained note. Yeah. Right? Exactly. That's what auto tune does in my because uh, I've only I'm only like have an ear for it because I worked with a singer who had a pedal that did it um and i i would just sing normally into it and like it wouldn't sound any different but then if i did like a uh, uh type thing it would mm-hmm. turn it into a scale pretty much sure. every single time right. which is but again i'm not i i don't think that it was used to mask anything or to, no. to get her to hit any notes i think it was a stylistic choice mm-hmm. um which could, I mean, that that lends credence to this theory that uh, we're. Oh, actually, you know what? Maybe we are getting some inkling of a connection to something because the very, very last thing we see in the finale are the lights going out and total blackness and darkness. So I don't know if this is supposed to be some sort of premonition, uh, or if the auto tune is meant to represent that sort of like unnatural thing or whatever dichotomy you want to place it into but uh ultimately we don't get any like closure on this like there's no it's just another one of these these evocative scenes yeah mm-hmm. yeah in any case i love this song i think it's gorgeous i think it's Me too. A, a great way to close out the episode it, it is quite long the song is about seven minutes long i believe and yeah yeah People made a big deal of the fact that this is a rather short episode. Like with this song, the entire episode is only 53 minutes, which means that there's only about what, like 46 minutes of actual episode here. 
um, which is unusual. It's probably, if I had to guess, the shortest episode in uh, in the season. And I think yeah, that combined with the fact that a lot of what we see is pretty rough stuff was one of the reasons why um, many people, including myself, felt a little uh, um, like struggled with this episode a bit. Yeah, it was not one of the ones that I was like reeling from after I watched it. It was, uh, you know, when you're watching, when we were watching it for the first time, like a lot of the times you would feel that a certain episode was a stepping stone, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe towards something else. This one didn't even feel that way. This one just sort of felt like you watched a bunch of uh, really awful abuse scenes and then a handful of, of zany uh Mitchum brothers candy moments but yeah it's it's not one of the more inspiring episodes but i think in the grand scheme of of this show it serves its purpose uh in in illuminating that that meta theme uh, of abuse and how you know i don't think it's a coincidence that this is the that this is the episode that we see laura palmer in again for the first time since i believe you said part four Yes, because mm-hmm. that the, she she is the uh, I don't even want to call her the poster child, but she is the the epitome. She, she is the thing. one. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This episode, not one of my favorite episodes to watch, but I do think that it is it is a very important episode for the identity of the show. So yeah, I would agree with that big time. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, that was a shorter episode of Twin Peaks, and uh, this is going to be uh, our shortest episode of 119 in, uh, in quite a while as a result. Um, well, they can't all be mega epics <laughs> uh, like Part 8, and, and even Part, not, part 9 had, had its own yeah. you know, things to say about that. Uh, yeah, but uh, boy, I'm looking forward to the next one because I love Part 11. It's great. So am I. I really uh, can't wait. Yeah some great stuff in that one yeah so uh if you're listening to this thanks so much for sticking around with us um you know we we love recording these episodes and we're happy that that people are listening we hope that you're enjoying it as much as we're enjoying recording it if you'd like to find us on the internet you can write into us uh 119 at sorry 119 podcast at gmail.com with any thoughts you may have about the series or something we said you can find us on twitter at 119 podcast uh, you can find me nick at strenuous orb and dylan is at piff dylan and uh with that we'll see you next week later guys adios